The genius and power of the internet can't be overstated. This has started revolutions and shine light on the inner workings of our government. Our natural unalienable rights are now considered to be a dispensation of government. And freedom has never been so close to slipping from our grasp as it is at this moment. We also have access to information like never before. But at the same time, so much of the information is intended to deflect, confuse, and upset you. Made by people who want to profit off you or outright control you. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. All of this is exactly why we need to know history and philosophy. We need to understand where we came from so we can know where we're going. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. This episode will be part two of the interview that I did with Stephen Guerrera. And this will be the middle section. I've got a third part that will come out in the following episode. This was a pretty long interview, obviously. And so I'll just start right off with my response to his last point. And we had been talking about what was leading up to the Reformation. And he mentioned some really big shifts that were going on. He specifically said that there were many social and economic and cultural and technological changes that were happening really fast all at the same time. And that this kind of culminated in this Reformation movement and really had a big impact on all this. He mentioned things like the Black Death the Avignon Papacy, the Crusades, the economy that was in this big upswing, and then all the new gold and silver that was found that was coming back in, and you had this inflation because of all of this gold and this new money and value that was flooding the markets, and all of these things that were going on. And so I am going to pick up with my response to that and some parallels that I'm making. So enjoy the rest of section two of the interview with Stephen Guerrera. Yeah, definitely. I'm definitely reminded of many aspects. You talk about the major shifts in society when the Black Death came through and how it not only killed off a large portion of the population, but this had all kinds of effects on the local economies and on other aspects of society. This reminds me of you know many of the different crises that have happened in more modern times. You could use maybe the Great Depression as an example, or maybe the rise of the internet, where so many people were losing their jobs to, well, maybe not only the internet, but technology, things like automation and yeah. the internet and um, brick and mortar places going out of business because online merchants are taking over. There's some major shifts economically, and a lot of these come through a crisis. I mentioned the Great Depression. You also have maybe the 2008 financial crisis that happens around the same time as this gigantic rise of technology comes to a head. And so we see some of those parallels. You mentioned the Avignon Papacy as well and how this was a time when the church really was largely under the control of the nobility in France, and that there were a lot of ways that they were integrally tied together 
and that really reminded me of maybe the 1900s, getting into the early and mid-1900s. In America, you had these foundations that really came into power. You had the Rockefeller Foundation. You had the Carnegie Endowment. You had J.P. Morgan. And they had so much influence to the point that they actually got together and created the Federal Reserve System. So they had large influence. You had Rockefellers that ran for president or that were involved in many other ways. I think one was the mayor of New York City. Um, There are a lot of Um, connections between these groups that were large power players. And I am comparing corporations to the historic nobility. So the parallel between the French nobility and these large corporate forces definitely makes a lot of sense here. And you talked about how really after this, you had the Crusades that had another very big impact on society, where you had these military endeavors that were going on all over the place, and they were really extending the resources of the people that were sending them. They couldn't really cope all by themselves. They needed some help, and they were, but they were spreading Christianity. They were expanding Christendom. This was a noble and worthy cause, we were all told. And this reminds me today of spreading democracy all around the world. And democracy is great. Everybody needs democracy. It is going to revitalize any country that doesn't have democracy. We'll go in, we'll take over the country, install democracy, and everything will be better. And we see the effect that has had in the Middle East, for example. But all over the world, Latin America, we have definitely made our rounds around the world as far as interventionism is concerned. And these are military conquests that are going on for for a, quote, noble cause or a good cause, a just war. And so there are some parallels there. And with this, you said that there was a lack of resources, that oftentimes they didn't have the funds, they didn't have the logistics and the networks to get the supplies out to their armies, and they needed help. You mentioned that the merchants stepped in and provided some of this assistance with funds and with their large networks that they had built out for all of their endeavors to get rich and gain power, which they were very successful at. And so if I compare that to modern times, I am comparing specifically these merchant bakers that rose up, this merchant class, probably to big tech, I think is the best example here. And we see a very similar thing with big tech in relation to the government, for example, that the government really needs more technology. They need more data. They need these systems. They need these networks in order to carry out the things that they need to carry out or want to carry out. And so these technology companies really come into play and become very important as governments are trying to really learn how to analyze data and use data to their advantage, do things like missile guidance systems and lots of these technological aspects of any military engagement, we start to see that technology plays a very big role. And thus, the technology companies are right there to step in and fill that role for them. And so then you mentioned how there was this upswing in the economy and there were some changes where a lot of these merchants switched from being just merchants that were handling maybe physical goods and they are 
stepping into this banker's role and really taking off and evolving into that role. And that reminds me of corporations that are largely changing today into this role of being more data collection services where it's not just money, it's information. And I guess that's always been the case that information is always the most valuable thing to anybody that Mm -hmm. wants power or control. And so that hasn't changed today, but we see that in an kind of in your face kind of a way with corporations that they're offering free services to all of society. And isn't this great? But it turns out that um, the reason why they're so free and they're so accessible is because they just need as much data as possible because data is the currency of the modern age. That is what is the most valuable thing. And we see this shift that's going on there. You mentioned how we had gold rushing in from this age of exploration and the Spanish that were coming and bringing in these large shipments of gold and all this influx of money was coming in. Well, we see a similar thing in our modern times where we have now established a fiat monetary system basically all around the world. There's only a handful of countries that don't have a central bank that run a fiat currency system, whereas we used to be backed by gold largely, and there used to be kind of uh, a value that money had behind it, whereas now we have this system that's been created and the governments can just print money. And as long as the central banks all around the world print roughly the same amount of money at the same time, you don't have runaway inflation because the inflation rates are the exact same. And so it works. And you have this large influx of money where governments are now carrying multiple trillions of dollars of debt per country. If you look at the overall debt for all the countries in the world, or at least the major countries in the world, the top few dozen that adds up to a number that is very, very much in the negative realm. There's only a few major countries that are actually earning a profit and don't owe any debt. That's very rare. So how in the world could you have the balances of all these countries, if you add them all up, be in the negative of trillions of dollars? It's because they can basically money out of nothing, but that the role that it plays on society back to the parallel is the same. We have this large influx of money and governments are using these funds to do new building projects and to uh, expand their role in society and give out more benefits. And we see a lot of prosperity that does come out of this. We see corporations expanding and a lot of government contracts that are going out to corporations. There was government money in the founding of Google, for example, and a lot of the biggest companies we have today. Tesla is another one taking off, and that was largely government funded to begin with. And so we see this government money that we have a large influx of. It's going into the society and into these businesses and we see the economies all around the Western world have really been exploding into modern times. And so overall, I see that this whole timeline and these big aspects that you're talking about that really brought us to the Reformation, really set the stage. It puts us in this context of being ready for this big change. I see that we have a lot of similar aspects in today's world, which is really interesting. So uh, we'll see how all this plays out if we are truly in a modern digital reformation, but we don't know yet. We'll see how things go. But I do find that this is 
very interesting. And so if you have a little more to talk about related to coming into the Reformation and the Reformation movement, maybe, or if you want to go ahead and go into the role of the printing press, like I would say that the internet and technology has played today, the printing press played a big role in this technological advancement then. So um, take your pick if you want to carry on with the Reformation or go into the printing press and the role that that played. I think we're in a very similar situation that they were in for all the th- the reasons that you laid out that we're really on the precipice of something and we don't know what's next because it really is you know they always say that history uh, repeats itself but it, that's nothing that you can predict you can predict that in the and uh, with 2020 hindsight but when you're looking into the future with you know with the all like you said with the printing of of money and where technology is going we're in a very similar situation that those reformers and really everyone was at in the 1500s and we're having the same people there's people who want to go back to an old way there's people who want to try and you know, do different things and, you know, people splitting off and, you know, there's a there's a lot of gloom and doom with a lot of people and there's a lot of f- f- uh, what it really comes down to is that people aren't comfortable with where things are going in the future. And, and it's in a way that maybe our uh, grandparents, great grandparents, a few generations ago, you know, they had a pretty predictable path that they could follow and that they figured their children could follow. But I would argue that the people back in the 1500s, especially the people with a wider perspective of how things were going, but now more people because of, you know, the technology we have have a larger perspective and that was another thing too back then with like you um like we'll talk about in just a second the printing press it's widening people's perspective with the ability of information that they can take in but there's only so much information that people can process and turn into usable something that they can use and i think that's what happened and there a lot of distortions can come through and a lot of misunderstandings can come in misunderstandings of either not understanding information or misunderstanding of where somebody else is coming from that cause fractions and uh, factions to split and you know just cracks in the system so that's where we can go back into the printing press the printing press played an enormous role in Luther, Martin Luther being able to spread his message just really quickly. I don't know how much um, you've talked about this, but Martin Luther was a guy. He lived in the 1500s. He was a, an Augustinian monk, a particular kind of monk that had a particular uh, theological stance, which really Augustinianism, which that's a whole nother uh, ball of wax, but that really was a strong streak throughout his theology pre and post Reformation. He nailed or he posted that, you know, there's the famous nailing up the 99 theses. But what that really wasn't a declaration of independence for him. Like, okay, now we're Lutherans and we're not with the Roman church anymore. That was just a common thing that academics did back then. They would put up 
the thesis were 99 points that he said, well, I think this is wrong. And I think that this is not right because of X, Y, and Z. And scholars did that all the time back then. And it was really meant to just stimulate discussion. It just so happened that his was pretty radical and pretty controversial the way he laid them down. And that's kind of why they stuck. Luther was a great marketer himself, and he could really package a message that was really understandable. Uh, And that's where the printing press came along. Pamphleteering was pretty old by that point. You know, people invent, you know, they would write up like physically by hand, write up pamphlets and pass them out or stick them up. Undoubtedly, Luther had written out his 99 theses, but that printing press and that technology really made it so that pamphlets, like a broadsheet, one sheet of paper could be made with a quick message on it and a picture, and they could just fire those out really quickly. Something like book technology, book technology actually didn't, wasn't quite the com- the quantum leap overhand writing that it's oftentimes made it out to be. It's printing a book with the technology of that time, even with movable type, was a pretty laborious process. It it cut down some of the costs and it made some of the things better, like you could make much more accurate copies. But it was not like just, you know, you weren't going to one day have no cop, you know, one copy of the Bible at the cathedral church. And then, oh, we've got movable type now. And now we can have, everybody can have their own uh, Bible in their pocket. It took quite a while for that technology to catch up. But the, where the printing press and the technology that they had was in being able to make a lot of copies of these either really short books or one or two, you know, one page sheets that could send out a quick, effective message. Yeah, yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And I definitely see that today with um, the media and with the internet and how we see a lot of these uh, small one page pamphlets that go around all over on Facebook and other platforms like this. And a lot of it is more clickbait articles that half the people don't even read all the way through and hardly anybody actually checks the sources on. And I imagine it was probably similar back then where if there was some scandalous information that someone wrote a little excerpt on and it was probably to ruin the reputation of someone that they were against, but people would get that and probably be scandalized and gossip all about it all around town and probably would not really research into it very much, even if they could. And so, yeah, definitely a lot of parallels there, both on the positive of all these new ways that you could educate yourself and expose yourself to new information and new perspectives, but also the negatives of all this extra information that's there just to entertain you or distract you or manipulate you. Propaganda becomes much more effective if you can hand out 
maybe 10,000 pamphlets instead of handwriting out 1,000. You can get a lot mm-hmm. more information, reach a lot more people, and it makes a big difference. Just like nowadays, now that we do have these social media platforms that virtually everybody is on at least two social media platforms on a daily basis. This is a very common thing in today's society. And so we have millions of people that are using these platforms and are exposed to all of these different types of uh, pamphleteering, so to say. And it has a very large reach. It has a very large impact. So if we see an anti-establishment movement that really gains steam, a message that really latches on We do have the technology for that to get out there, for that to get out there quickly and to spread to the masses, so to say. And we do see some hints of that where I mentioned the Epstein story. actually just saw today another uh, news release on the Epstein case where uh, someone came out and talked about how he had been running this operation for longer than we thought and the girls were younger than we thought and all this other stuff. But we see things like that that come out where it's calling out corruption in the establishment institutions. And I know that did happen, for example, with Luther. He was calling out some issues that he had with the church. And like you said, this wasn't an outstanding thing. It wasn't that nobody had ever done this before. People did this fairly regularly as a part of discussion. But for whatever reason, uh, I guess for all of these reasons that we've been talking about that really set the stage for this and really got it going— This actually did get going, and this time it really did take off, and he was someone that was very persuasive. And so I I could see that coming today where we do have corruption being called out. We do have anti-establishment movements both on the left and on the right and from the libertarians. We have it from all over the place. And so we'll see if these gain steam. You mentioned how history doesn't necessarily repeat itself in a way that we can tell the future, and that is very true. But hopefully we can look at these trends and parallels and examples and at least see roughly where things are headed and what the potential is so that we can maybe influence it if we so desire, or prepare ourselves for potential outcomes, or whatever the case may be. But there are some practical applications to better understanding our modern times in relation to very um, very similar historical parallels. So hopefully this is something that we are getting out of this, that our listeners are getting out of this, but I know I have myself as I've been researching yeah, all sure. this. It's it's very helpful. It really helps me to better understand things. I see things through a different lens, through a different perspective, and I hear stories that are coming out. And it's like, I've heard this before. I, I've seen this play out before. I know where this is going. And oftentimes, they do play out in a very similar way. Not exactly, but in a very similar way. We see similar yeah. trends. What, what do you think about those things? Yeah, I think that in our modern time, you can just see between when the major social media, when it really started, say, in the, uh, you know, like 2008, the mid uh, first decade of the 2000s, and you see the trends of how how that changed and so how the market of how uh, meaning how people used these tools to 
how how the technology and how people used each used the technology it you know they kind of evolved together where facebook originally was really just a way to catch up with friends and make new friends now it's a completely marketing and data and sales tool a lot of these uh things and and it's almost hidden even with influencers and things that, you know, if you had gone to your, uh, you know, somebody you knew in 1998, they'd think you were a lunatic if you were saying that on this little thing I hold in my hand, I can have access to the whole world and people... Uh, you know, from the middle of nowhere have 100,000 people all around the world who are following every single thing that they type into this little rectangle on their hand. Uh, and that you're going to, you know, we call it your phone, but you almost never make phone calls on it. You know, I think that they is literally as early back is probably i would even say like the year 2000 somebody would have said you were nuts and would have called that complete science fiction yeah it was on star trek i believe they had devices like that i mean it's even more high tech than what they had that is true (laughs) (laughs) yeah so so then what they had envisioned yeah yeah, so um, I've actually read a quote from the author of A Brave New World, and he, he had mentioned that there are many technologies that he imagined, and he placed those into this fantastical book. But as of, I think the speech that I was looking at that the quote came from was from the 60s, and as of that time period, he said that he's already seeing these things come to light, and the impact that they're having on society, and that the things that he thought were fantastical are turning into reality. And so we, we see that playing out, again, like you just mentioned, in our modern times with social media and smartphones and all of this, just like he saw even way back in the 60s. So it's really interesting. And it's just happened so quickly. And that, you know, the pace of life was obviously a lot slower back then. But the changes that happened then, with all those changes that we listed out earlier, they happened at lightning speed by by that point. And it's really a, a big part of it is how how much time do people need to be able to absorb that change and to really incorporate it it into their lives and make it where it's natural to them. And we're, you know, we're in a, a big flux right now where you have kids who understand this technology, uh, technology intimately and their parents don't understand it at all. You know, that's obviously going to cause some sort of disruption in, from the micro scale to the family to society. Yeah, definitely. And I will probably bring that up near the end because that does play into what I believe might be coming for us in the future. But you mentioned the rate of change, and that's something that I have kind of struggled with as I've been doing these different parallels and playing them out and comparing them to modern times. Because like you said, things were much more slow in their pace than they are today. And we see, like, for example, I had just mentioned everything from the Great Depression to modern times with fiat money. Um, 
setting the stage for where we are today and comparing to you setting the stage for the Reformation. And if you look at, for example, the 1900s, that would take you just prior to the Federal Reserve, prior to the Great Depression, prior to World War I, and all of these big changes, up to even all the way to the present, that's uh, roughly a little over 100 years. Whereas this time period we are looking at that have very similar parallels take place over a much larger time period. And so it's really interesting that as I look forward to what's possibly coming and how things are changing and how they might evolve, it's really interesting because as we look at the historical examples, it might have taken two or 300 years for a change to happen, whereas today we might see that change in a matter of two or three decades. And so there's definitely a huge difference here. Yeah, I remember seeing uh, back when I was a kid, um, I think it was my grandfather had this old magazine and I looked at it and they had how the perspective of a person's changed like and how they relate to the world. And it was the first picture was like this massive globe with a person like a speck and you couldn't even see it. And as uh, you know, the time went by up to like the 60s, you know, the world got smaller and the person got bigger. I mean, now you can you have the world at your hands, you know, at your complete fingertips, you know, so so how much has our our perspective on world events changed? But have you know have we changed that much to be able to absorb all of that information and all of that perspective? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You you mentioned that example, that analogy. You could take that a step further and take it into like a philosophical perspective where modern day people view themselves as more of the center of the world than probably (laughs) prior generations did. And we see that playing out. And it's very similar to this question that you're asking about, what will the impact of all of these technological changes be if we can't even catch up to them? And we're not at that point, we can't digest them at this rate. And it's the same thing when you talk about philosophy and ideology. We have so many changes coming with postmodernism and existentialism and this view today that there is no such thing as truth. It, it, what's true to you is different than what's true to me, which is different than what's true to somebody else, which actually is different than the actual definition of truth. But we see yeah. that there is no such thing as truth. There is no such thing as morality. These things, we, we can't have a concrete idea of these things. And therefore, we have a society today that is... Uh, not very grounded. They don't really know what to think. They don't really have a system to follow and to fit into. And so we see things like people being very depressed. They feel like they don't fit into the world. They're not serving a higher purpose of any kind. We see people getting radicalized over the internet by watching some YouTube videos. It sounds crazy, but they are seeing that there are these other people generally on the other side of the world that have these radical views, but they they mean it. They are following it because they truly believe it. And they are living it out. They are doing it. This is real. This is genuine. They have a structure that tells them what's right and what's wrong. And they live by that. They actually do this. And that's a stark contrast to 
people in, let's say, Western society today where it's kind of eh, just anything goes. We don't really know what's right, what's wrong. And if you actually say that your opinion is that something is right or wrong, then you're probably going to get canceled on Twitter because that was not politically correct. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, a lot of these issues with digesting these changes that are occurring so fast in modern times that they're definitely going to have an impact on our future and things are going to, uh, uh, I would guess, possibly explode. We we might have some big issues that looking back maybe a hundred years from now, looking back to our modern times that we are living in today, we might see that this was a huge turning point because of all these different factors we're talking about. And it's not just technology. It's not just philosophy. It's not just any one of these things. It's how they all come together to this confluence of events and this milieu that we're living in. It it all comes together. It all interacts together. It's all intertwined. It's a web. And it really feels like it's coming to a head. And if we look at the historical parallel, it was coming to a head when all these factors were at play. And it wasn't just affecting one aspect. It was affecting many aspects of society. So getting back into that, what about the aspects related to finance and economics that were occurring with all of these changes in this time period? We have these huge societal changes that are going on. And you've already mentioned a few times there were some economic impacts to this. And we see this in the institutional church as well as society as a whole. And you've mentioned the merchant bankers. We've mentioned the name Medici before. How how are all of these things impacted with all these changes that are occurring? The Medici and the the uh, the bankers, their function was really to get to move the money around that the church accumulated from various sources and either use it for purposes that the church wanted it for. Maybe it was building new church buildings, uh, alms to the poor, you know, the various functions to the church or to get it to certain kings for certain purposes or even lend the money out. A big way that the church got money, and really its main way and historically the main way that it got money, was that uh, the money, a lot of the, the wealth that the church got started from basic contributions that a person in their local parish put a couple of coins into the you know, gave a couple of coins to the church. They were technically supposed to give a tithe, a tenth of their of their income to the church or um, sometimes called their first fruits, like their first, uh, the first uh, percentage of the money or the goods that they earned in a year, they would give it to the church. Now that local parish, they passed up some of that money and that those uh, resources to the level of the hierarchy above them. So then that next level of hierarchy, they accumulated some money. Obviously, each step has to keep some for their own operations, but they move some up to the next level, to the next level, to the next level. And you needed people to be able to do that, the transactions and move that money. I mean, it starts you know, a little bit down at the bottom really starts to turn into a serious flow of money when you start, uh, you know, 
when it's all of Europe doing it, uh, there was also special donation times where sometimes they would collect uh, money from people, from parishioners, and that would go straight to a certain thing. Maybe a, it would go to Rome. There was also, they could raise money through things called indulgences, which that was one of the things that really tweaked Martin Luther for a variety of reasons, both um, because of the corruption angle and theological angles, which, um, which we don't really need to get into at this point. But those those indulgences, they were a kind of a, a pass for a penance when you do a sin in uh, Catholicism, then you have to do something to make up for that sin. Now you can't just pay it off. You can't say, "Okay, here's um, you know, here's fifty bucks. Get me out of this one." You have to do something for it to get out of that penance. It might be saying prayers. If it's a pretty bad thing, it might be doing a pilgrimage. So you go to one of the major pilgrimage sites. If it was, um, you know, if your sin was pretty low grade, you could go to the local shrine of uh, of a saint that was important. If it was something a little bit bigger, maybe you have to do a pilgrimage to. Rome or Santiago de Compostela or something like that. And the indulgence was another way to do that. You could get one of these indulgences for somebody who had died and take some years off of their time in purgatory. Or you could um, get one of these indulgences to... uh, you could get that to take some time off of your own time in purgatory. And people really, you know, this was super hyper important to them. You could also, there was a roundabout way that you could make a donation to the church. So you're not exactly buying the indulgence. You're donating to the church, which earns you an indulgence, which that indulgence means that you're getting some time off of purgatory or you're getting a uh, dispensation from doing a certain uh, type of penance. So, I mean, I you could see pretty clearly how somebody could say, you're not donating it to the church. You're giving them a coin to get this piece of paper that says you're getting so much time off of your time in purgatory. It's a one-to-one transaction if you're looking at it that way, not in the roundabout way in the, you know, the way that it probably really did work that you would, you know, you were making a sacrifice to the church and the church was giving back to you from their uh, you know, their powers of giving you penance. Now, there was some actual, you know, corruption or some unethical behavior with the indulgences uh, in a neighboring country, uh, county and an area where Martin Luther lived by a monk called Johann Tetzel, who pretty much was just directly selling these indulgences for, you know, as a one-to-one transaction. And he was, you know, he he made up songs for to sell the indulgences. It was pretty cheesy. And he was trying to make a name for himself to basically get raise as much money as he could to send that money to Rome because they were trying to rebuild a major cathedral in Rome, St. Peter's Basilica. It's not technically a cathedral, but we won't split hairs here. But they were trying to raise money to 
fix up that basilica. And so Johann Tetzel was trying to raise a lot of money, and he did do some things that were unethical. And Martin Luther definitely saw that, and he called him out on it. Okay, yeah, there's one thing that really stood out to me when you were mentioning how indulgences work. It definitely reminded me of campaign contributions, where Mm -hmm. a corporation might donate money to a political campaign. They're not necessarily buying anything with it, just a donation. And if they just so happen to get a government contract or get to write the regulation that regulates their industry in the following years, then, you know, it just happened. It's a coincidence. And yeah, we definitely see that going on in every political campaign that comes through. So, yeah, definitely some parallels there. Um, What about the way that the church would choose who would be a a member of their hierarchy? How would they choose their employees, so to say, and how would they pick who is going to be a bishop, who's going to be a pope, who's going to be a priest? How would people get those positions? The church, really, they had access to probably, you know, really the most the most intelligent and talented people in the entire and really and for the most part in what you could call Christendom anyway where where they were in Christ in the particularly in Western Europe if there was somebody who was showing an intellectual aptitude or had talent in administration the church took them in because there wasn't any really other option for most people to exercise those skills. You know, there, there were only so many places if, um, you know, you're, you weren't going to really work your way into the aristocracy through any sort of merit, you know, merit-based uh, activities. But the church was a place where you could go in and become a clerk. And if you were you know, showed some aptitude, you know, they could teach you to read, teach you numeracy, teach you all of those skills that you could use. So they really, they snatched up a huge talent pool from all over the, you know, all over every country and every uh, municipality and duchy. They could, they could get the people and those were the, the church was the one who had the educational facilities and the ability to teach people. And really, even after the Reformation, universities were still religiously minded places for a long, long time. I mean, you look even at the earliest colleges founded in the U.S., places like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, they were set up by particular religious denominations. Theology was really the main department and reverends. And pastors, they were the early presidents and leaders of those places. Religious education was really, that was the place where people went if they had the aptitude for learning. It was really your only, one of your very few options. Yeah, so it sounds like the church was the place that you wanted to gain a position in. It had a lot of perks. It was kind of the cream of the crop, the people that were at the top of the chain. And that's where people would love to get a job landed. And we see that oftentimes with state jobs today. They are thought of as being these gravy jobs where you don't really have to work really hard. But generally, you have to at least either know somebody if you want to go that angle, just like they're 
were things like simony and other aspects of getting into church positions, but the other way is to be good in a specific field. You get brought on under a government contract or into a government job, and then you can kind of just ride it out and do whatever you like. And that's kind of the ultimate position that someone would want to be in because it is the ultimate establishment that's above all the other institutions. And that is a very good place to be. That's considered a very stable job, a steady job, a good job, a respectable job. And I see that that sounds very similar to working for the church and being a part of their bureaucracy or their hierarchy. It sounds fairly similar here. And with that, we had the church that I, uh, I'm i referencing as being the top dog, the top institution. Well, with that, as we've been talking about economic factors and finance and stuff, what were some of the aspects of economic leverage that the church had over the nobility or over the merchant class, over these other institutional players that were in the society at that time? One of the main leverages that the church had over nobles and even the merchants in the banking dynasties is, in short, they had the leverage, they had spiritual leverage that they could excommunicate or essentially kick out someone from the religion. So that's cutting them, you know, the out that's cutting them out of this entire central part of their lifestyle. I mean, almost if you're going to put it in a, uh, a modern uh, parallel, like getting per- permanently banned from Twitter, it's, it's, you know, it's cutting you out of the social function of every aspect of your life. Now, they also, beyond, beyond that religious power, they had this, this access, this ready access to tons and tons of resources. So they could change the flow of, I'm not going to use this banker anymore. I'm going to do use uh, a different banking house. And that's an almost instant death sentence to the banking house that they switched from. You know, so that's a huge amount of leverage that they have. They can also, because they're not a state, the Pope can talk to uh, the leadership of Spain. Oh, maybe you shouldn't help France in that war against the Holy Roman Empire. So now France is at a disadvantage. Or maybe they talk to France and say, hey, you know, I know you've been thinking about uh, attacking Spain, maybe we'll throw some money your way to make that happen more, or maybe you'll in your in a next conflict you'll have access to our army of mercenaries, or maybe we'll talk to another you know principality and they'll be able to help you in something. So they had a lot of the the soft power that they could really nudge things in different directions. And sometimes it worked really well. And obviously, in other times, they did. The popes did fall on their face. But that's a huge amount of power that they had at their hands, at their fingertips. So this will be the cutoff point for this section of the interview. We'll pick up next time for the third and final section where I will just pick right up with my response in the very next part of the interview and play from there. 
So for the end of this episode, I want to say thank you to all of you that are listening. I really appreciate that. And I am sure Stephen appreciates that as well. If you are interested in his podcast, it's a really good one for learning a lot more about the types of things that we're talking about here, but mainly focused on the historical aspect, the political side of the church and how the papacies operated and a little bit about theology at times and how that applied and how that worked out as well as some economic factors and lots of different stuff that he gets into in the different episodes it's very interesting and i would highly recommend it so i want to leave you with that thank you for your support thank you for listening please come back next time and we will wrap up this interview then i'm out peace This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.